Good morning, everyone. You can have your seat. Thank you so much for joining us. We've, if we haven't met before, my name is Grayson. I'm one of the group's pastors here, and I'm so thankful to be able to bring you God's Word today. We've been in a, a series, a four-week series on the presence of God. First week, Richie shared with us what is the presence of God and the fact that God, the Almighty God, wants to know you. He wants to live inside of you, to live with you. He's given us His Spirit. As soon as we chose to follow Him, He gave us His Spirit to live inside of us and guide us. This is the second week we talked about preparing the way for God and how God wants to be there, but He's not going to go anywhere He's not welcome. He's not going to insert himself. Instead, he's going to wait to see if we are willing and ready to have him join us. And repentance is the word we talked about. That's me saying, okay, God, I have done wrong, but I want to do things your way. It's not just a confession of sin. It's a a complete change in the trajectory of our lives. That's how we prepare the way for God. The third week, last week, Richie talked about how we can enter God's presence boldly. The, the picture I always get is of a kid climbing up on his dad's lap and pulling on his beard, right? Doesn't know any better, just knows that this is my dad. I love him. That's the kind of boldness God has allowed us to enter his presence with. And it's not because of anything you and I have done. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross, that he gave his life as a sacrifice so that we could be brought near who are once far. Today, I want to get really, really practical. And we've been talking about God's presence and we would do you a disservice if we left it all in the theoretical realm of, okay, this, this could be what this looks like. These are the, the facts and the details. Today, we're going to talk about what does it look like to actually steward God's presence. And if you're like me, steward might not be a word that enters your vocabulary very often, right? It's kind of an old-fashioned term. What is stewardship? Stewardship means that someone has given me something that belongs to him or her, and I'm the one who's going to take care of it. I'm going to grow it. I'm going to make sure that it's healthy. You'll see this with people who give other people money to steward, to take care of, to grow. Stewardship. Did you know that the presence God gave you, doesn't? it's not yours. It's God's presence. He gave it to us. We get to steward that presence. We get to walk in it. We get to give God's presence the opportunity to flourish and grow in our hearts and our lives. Today, we're going to talk about some really practical ways to do that and to actually walk in that. So, when I was in college, I had this professor. His name was Dr. Tim Anstein, uh, an organic chemistry professor who was awesome. And he would lead a Bible study Wednesdays. And my wife and I and a bunch of our friends would all go to this Bible study. And when you were around Dr. Anstein for more than a couple minutes, you knew something's different about this guy. You could tell that God's presence was inside of him. You could tell that he was passionately in love with God just from the way he talked and spoke. And he would talk about a morning ritual that he had where he would come and he'd pick out his socks. And he said, when I'm picking out socks, I'm there saying, Jesus, which pair of socks should I wear? What should I put on this morning? And, and what do you think about this? And I remember thinking, and I even talked to different uh, other college students about this with a little bit of skepticism, like, okay, do I really need God to pick out my socks for me? I wear all black socks. That's kind of boring anyway, right? Like, do I need this to happen? And is this taking it too far? And what I realized later was, no, that was not taking it too far. It's not that Dr. Einstein needed 
God to pick out his socks for him. It's that he wanted God to be part of that process. He wanted to invite him in, even into the mundane parts of his life, so that he could be completely radically transformed over time. And that's the picture I want to look at today. Uh, if you want to open with me to Hebrews chapter 12, we're, go- we're going to talk about a passage there that's really going to illustrate for us what does it look like to actually steward God's presence well. Uh, the book of Hebrews has the first 10 chapters of it are incredible. It's all about Jesus. And I know that sounds like a trite Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? It's powerful. It's going to outline who Jesus is, why he's better than anyone else or anything else, and how his sacrifice is what brought us near. Richie actually preached out of it last week to talk about what Jesus did enabled us to enter boldly. Well, chapter 11, the author is going to talk about faith. And the author is going to say faith is something that you have to have. You cannot please God without it. And let me show you examples of people from the Bible who lived lives of faith. And it's kind of like a a hit list almost of this person lived by faith, and this is what they did, and this is what happened, and it was awesome. And then this person did it, and over and over examples of faith. And it creates this great cloud of witnesses, of people who have lived the life of stewarding God's presence well so that we can look and we can learn from that. Well, the author picks up in chapter 12, the first three verses here, and says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he, he, he scorned the cross, enduring his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The author's going to talk, we're going to talk about three different phrases in there. One of them I want to kind of demystify at the beginning is this phrase, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That same guy, Dr. Anstein, used to talk about this all the time. The words in the original language actually mean looking away unto Jesus. See how that's different? Fixing my eyes on Jesus, it's like this focus thing. But actually what I'm doing is I'm looking away. Looking away from what? Well, myself, for starters. I get in the way so badly of relationship with Jesus if I let myself. All the chaos of my life around me, all the craziness and sickness and pain and difficulty, I'm looking away from that unto Jesus. So we have these three phrases we'll talk about, but I want to talk about first a couple of these witnesses. The author talks about this great cloud of witnesses, two guys named Moses and Joshua. You may have heard of them, may have not. They're kind of a big deal, though. When you go back in the Bible, you'll see them mostly in Exodus through Joshua, those books. Moses, he was, he was someone who really wanted to see the people of Israel saved out of slavery, and God did, too. And God used Moses to help navigate out of that. They crossed through the Red Sea, which parted. God did miraculous work to bring this ragtag group of people out into the middle of the desert. And in the desert was a mountain, the mountain of God called Mount Sinai. And as the people huddled around it, it was a, they were kind of terrified of the sight because there was earthquakes and there was fire and there was smoke and the sound of ram's horns being blown. And I know you know exactly what I mean when I say that, right? Just this, all this noise and confusion and the people are gathered around this mountain and God says, I want you to marry me. I want you to be my people 
I want to be your God, and I don't want anything or anyone to come between us. That's what's happening at Mount Sinai is this amazing kind of wedding covenant. And the people say, yes, we want it. We want you. We want to be with you. Moses goes up the mountain, comes back down, says, are you sure? They say, yes, we're sure. We're in. Take us. We're going to be your people. And what ends up happening is Moses goes up the mountain. By the way, he's bouncing up and down this mountain. He's 80 years old. This is like Stairmaster Plus, right? This guy is getting his calves going. He goes back up the mountain, and as he's up there, he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. No food, no water, just God's presence is sustaining him. And God is giving him all these commandments and these, these things. He's like, this is what our family's going to look like. We're not going to murder we're going to be faithful to each other. We're not going to lie. This is what we're going to be like. And as Moses is up on the mountain, the people are at the bottom of the mountain. They were too terrified to go up the mountain. They said, Moses, you go. We're scared. <laughs> we don't want to do this. And as they're waiting there, they, find, they get bored. And they say, we don't know what's happened to this Moses fellow. It's 40, 40 days, no food, no water. And, well, he's kind of an old guy, right? Like, he's gone. Moses is done for. So make us gods that we can worship them. This would be like, on your honeymoon, having an affair. That's what the people of Israel did at the foot of the mountain. They made this golden calf. They bowed down and worshiped it. Well, Moses goes to bat for the people on the top of the mountain, says, God, don't, don't wipe them out. I'll go down and take care of it. He goes down. He takes the calf, grinds it to powder, and makes them drink it. This is the kind of guy Moses is, right? And he cleans house, goes back up the mountain, and God says something really telling. He says, look, I'm taking you to this promised land, but the problem is, if my presence goes with you, you're going to be destroyed on the way. Clearly, these people don't have the heart for me. They don't have the ability to focus and to remain faithful. I don't want to destroy you. I'm not going with you. You guys go on your own. I'll, I'll send my angel ahead of you, but do that. It's this tragic moment where the people had such access to God's presence, and he withdraws it. Well, Moses goes down the mountain. He's not content with that. He builds a tent on the outskirts of of the, the camp, where he can go and meet with God. Because God's cool with Moses being in his presence. He's just not sure about all those other people. Moses goes and spends time in that tent, and every time he comes out, because he's been in God's presence, his face glows. It's like he's radioactive or something. And it freaks them out so much, he puts a veil around his head. Guys, the Old Testament's awesome. You should read it. There's so much cool stuff that's happening here. But Joshua is Moses' second command, his aid. And Joshua can't go in the tent. That's Moses' prerogative. Joshua stays outside of the tent day and night and will not leave. He's like, okay, God, I can't be in the tent, but I'm going to have my back against the flap kind of peeking in, right? I'm going to be as close as I possibly can be to your presence at all times. These are, these are these guys that are mentioned in the Hebrews Hall of Faith. Well, Moses goes back up the mountain again. Poor guy, right? And he's talking to God, and God says, Moses, I'm so pleased with you. I love you. Man, you've done such a great job. What do you want? And Moses says, first off, give me wisdom to govern these people because they're nuts, right? I don't know how to deal with these people. But second, please, please send your presence with us. I know you said you wouldn't. We're no different from anyone else. Unless your presence goes with us, there's no point in us taking this journey please, God, send your presence. And you know what God does? He does it. He says, yes, God, okay, I'll, I'll do it. I said I wouldn't, but I'll do it because I'm so pleased with you, Moses. See, Moses is someone who gets it. He wants to be in God's presence. Everyone else is afraid. He's going to be right there with God. Those are the kinds of people that 
Scripture is giving us as examples of what this looks like to steward God's presence well. So I want to look at these three phrases, keeping in mind the examples of Moses and Joshua. First one, we already talked about, look away unto Jesus. If you want to learn how to steward God's presence well, look away unto Jesus. If, if a lot of us are honest, when we think about our relationship with God, um, it's very easy to turn it into 30 minutes in the morning before we go to work or school or whatever it is. That's the extent of our engagement with God, right? Like, okay, I, I did my time, got my punch card, we're good to go, God's got my, the rest of my day blessed. That falls so far short of what God intended and wants for His presence. It's crazy. God says, no, 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 no. I don't just want 30 minutes. I want everything. I want to be with you all day long in every situation. Yes, I want to help you pick out your socks. Invite me in. 30 minutes is not, is not what I was asking for. It's very easy for us as Americans to compartmentalize and think in those ways. Packets of time. God says, no, I want it all. I want to be part of it all. I want to invite myself right in there because I have the capacity and I have the love for you. Uh, some of us are Sunday morning Christians where we'll come in on Sunday morning and this is the only time for honest we're really engaging with God through the week. And it's a, an hour here and we're singing and we're listening to the message. But really, if we're honest with ourselves, we're not really pursuing God any more through the week than that. And that's not relationship with God. That's not passion for His presence. And my encouragement isn't to feel, for you to feel beat down by that, but to recognize, no, God says, I want to be with you all the time. Think about if you've ever had a crush on someone or dated someone or married someone. When you first got to know them, you wanted to spend all your time with them. Every possible, no, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, you, right? Remember those, those feelings? That's the feeling that God has for you. He doesn't want to let you off the phone. He doesn't want you to go. He wants to be right in the thick of it with you. We get to open up and allow him to do that. That's what it means to look away into Jesus. I get in the way because I'm very selfish. I like things my way. Uh, I have my preferences. Uh, my, oh, God, my day is busy. I, you can't even comprehend how busy my day is and how, all the stuff that's going on. Meanwhile, he's keeping the universe spinning, right? It's so easy for me to get my eyes fixed on myself. And our culture lends itself to it. It's a very me-centered culture we live in. Have it your way. Do it your way. As long as my eyes are on me, God's presence doesn't have any room to thrive and grow and breathe inside of me. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's look away unto Jesus. Think about Joshua in front of that tent of meeting. That's the image we're looking at. What's he doing? Looking away from everything. He's not at his tent. He's not taking care of his stuff. He's right there in God's presence all the time. Uh, for each of these phrases, I want to give a spiritual discipline. And spiritual discipline, it's a weird word, weird phrase. Uh, there are hundreds of these. They're, the intention of spiritual disciplines isn't that you're doing all of them all the time, but at different times in our life, a spiritual discipline opens up our lives and gives God room to enter in. God can't, if we don't give him wiggle room, he's not going to be able to move. If, if we don't give him opportunity to speak, we're not going to hear his voice. Spiritual disciplines pave the way for God to enter in and do something miraculous. So spiritual discipline with looking away unto Jesus is something called the practice of the presence of God. Some of you may have heard of him. There's this monk named Brother Lawrence. Uh, yes, a monk. He was living in a monastery his whole life, and he wasn't a really famous guy. He worked in the kitchen. 
He cooked food. He scrubbed pots and pans. Glorious life, I know, right? Go sign me up. Brother Lawrence. But the thing with him was he said, well, why can't I just use every moment of my life to engage in relationship with God, to be continually aware that he's here with me, to pursue him, to listen to his voice, to invite him in, and that's what he did. And he says, it was the hardest thing I ever did at the beginning because I got so distracted. I don't know if any of you have squirrel syndrome too, right, where, oh, no, I'm distracted. Oh, there's that thing. He says, it's so hard at the beginning, but over time, he developed this discipline to where every moment of every day, God was there. And it transformed him to the point where he's working as a cook in the kitchen and everyone wanted to be around him because they knew he had, not only did he have access to God, God had access to him. God had full access to his life. And what this looks like for me is when I'm practicing this, as I'm going through the day, I'm not constantly talking like I am right now, right? I'm leaving lots of space. I'm listening to God. Even when I'm doing tasks in the background, there's this awareness of God's presence, that he's there, that he's with me, and I'm, and I'm inviting him in. That's what the practice of the presence of God looks like. You're not going to do well at it at the beginning, I promise you, but it's one of those that the more we work at it, the more God's going to infuse our lives with him, with his presence. So practice the presence of God. Okay, the second phrase I want to look at The author here says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles is the next line there, right? But throw it off. If looking away into Jesus is about attention and focus, throwing off everything that hinders is about minimizing distractions. Anyone else in this room highly distracted? Okay. Uh, Here's a statistic. This is real. It's scary, but it's real. Our children these days have a shorter attention span than a goldfish. And I'm not making that up. They can focus longer than our kids can. It's because we live in a saturated culture where there's so much noise, so many bright lights, so many things to draw your attention, so many people vying for you to buy their product or do their thing. Our lives are chaos because of it. It's so crazy. Have you ever heard of something called social media? Yeah, it's everywhere. The news, just listening to the news and everywhere we go, everything we do, there's these voices competing for our attention. And what those are going to do is it's going to distract us from being able to focus on Jesus and on his presence in our lives. We need to minimize distractions. A couple of distractions I want to highlight today is, number one, remember the author talking about the sin that so easily entangles. Sin is anything that I do that's contrary to what God is asking me to do. And that's a whole variety of different things that apply there. A lot of them, we think of big sins like, oh, such a, an addiction to something. I'm stuck in this rut and this pattern, and it's just owning my life. That's an example of a sin. But how about this? I go home, and I'm irritable with my wife. Or, I, or you snap with your kids. Or you know God's calling you to do this, but you're like, yeah, I'd rather not. I'd rather do this. All of those are sin. Every time we do that, That's me putting distance between myself and God. That's me pushing his presence out of my life. The author of Hebrews says, get rid of that. And I love how Jesus puts it. He's like, did your eye cause you to sin, what you're looking at? Pluck it out and throw it away. Did your hand cause you to sin? Cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter heaven missing a hand or an eye than to enter hell where both eyes and both hands exist. Jesus is not saying maim yourself, okay? Let's put that to rest. What he's saying is, is there something in your life that has been a gateway to sin for you? Deal with it immediately and deal with it violently. 
Don't play games. Don't play around. Throw off everything that hinders, the sin that entangles. Don't play games with it because every moment you're dancing around that issue and, and engaging in it, what you're doing is you're pushing God out of your life. Don't give in for a moment. Here's another one, and this one definitely hits close to home for me, um, busyness. So ask anyone, hey, how are you doing today? I'm going to guess probably about 50% of the responses I get are what? Busy, right? Oh, busy. There's so much going on. You know, I have triathlete kids, 12 of them, and they're all, right? We're just busy. It's kind of, we're being Americans here. We're nice and busy and have no margin for anything and busyness. Here's a news flash. Busyness is not one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's not a spiritual gift. It's not something that God says, hey, have more of this. You know you're winning if you're busy. Actually, busyness can be the enemy. Busyness is a way to distract us from what God has for us. And I know that's hard because our culture screams at you, be productive and always be doing something and always fill every gap you have. Part of throwing off everything that hinders is recognizing I have to say no to a lot of good things to say yes to the best things that God has for me. And that's hard for an overcommitter like me because I'm so excited about all the good things. Put it off. Say yes to the best things. That's how we're going to create this margin for God to work. Uh, a great picture of this, uh, a friend of mine texted me this last week, and he texted me these exact verses. I love how God works that way. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, and gave me his kind of what God had spoken to him from it. And he gave me an, a fantastic analogy that I'm just going to blatantly steal from him. So here we go. Any of you ever been a part of Bloomsday or, or been to Bloomsday? Okay, a few of us. It's hard. It's on Sunday. You know, I'm, I'm always here on Sunday. But Bloomsday is a huge thing Spokane does. It's this race, and people from all over the United States come to our city to run this race. And it's so cool seeing so many people show up. Well, there's a tradition at the beginning of the race. As everyone's getting ready, they will take off their overcoats, their pants over their shorts, everything that they won't need for the race, and they'll throw it off to the side. There should be an image on the screen of this at some point here. But, and you'll see clothing dangling from tree limbs. You'll see it all over the sidewalks. I don't know if they ever get them back. I think they're just like, well, see ya. I'm done. But the point is they're about to run this race, and they know that all of those articles of clothing are only going to get in their way. They're only going to drag them down and minimize their effectiveness. So, like, we're getting rid of everything we can so that we can run this race. Isn't that what the author of Hebrews said? Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Do the Bloomsday thing. Whatever it is that's holding you back, get rid of it. Because what I'm actually doing is I'm cutting myself off from the grace, the goodness, the presence of God when I play around with things that are not beneficial to me. And that's hard because a lot of those things are things we really like. And, and what I would encourage you, how do you identify these things? Where in your heart does Jesus have no jurisdiction? Where are you unwilling to let him have lordship and have ownership of those things? It might be your kids. It might be your family. It might be your hobbies. It might be your spare time, how you use it. Where is God not welcome? You're like, okay, God, I'll give you everything, but I won't give you that thing. That's exactly the thing that God is asking you to give him today. Because that's the thing that's holding you back from the fullness of God's presence in your life. 
What is it that's distracting you from God? It is not worth holding on to, not for a moment. There's a spiritual discipline that I want to give you with this as well. And this is one that's great because it goes against the grain of our society. And the discipline is simplicity. Simplicity. Life is complex. Life is always trying to get more complex. Simplicity is an ages-old practice of saying, hey, I'm going to minimize all the complexity I can in my life to where it's just so simple. It frees up so much capacity for God. Uh, I've had friends, and I lived in Portland, I'll preface this with that, who sold their vehicles and just rode to work on bikes or just walked around. How many of you would love to not have to pay those gas prices? Mission complete. Sell your car, right? That's, that's the easy thing. No insurance to pay, none of those sorts of things. It's just more complex owning vehicles. So what they did was they simplified. No more cars. I live in Deer Park. This is not one I'll be practicing, right? But simplify. I have another friend who said, for a month, I'm just going to eat rice. Nothing else. I'm not going to worry about meal prep, none of those things. I'm just going to be able to focus on God. I'm going to free up all that time to allow God into my life. What is it that's complex? Simplify it. Cut it out. You don't need it as badly as you think you do. God's inviting you to simplicity today. The third phrase in here that I really want to highlight is consider him who endured opposition. Consider him who endured opposition from sinful men. That's Jesus. So that you can be, really the whole point of it is so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider Jesus. And that's not just think about him, right? That's kind of a vague notion of, oh, just have good thoughts about Jesus. No, this is consider, ponder, muse over, dive in. Don't just think about Jesus. Really consider Jesus. Uh, and, and a couple of different things that I do that help me with this is, number one, it's a, this is also an ancient practice called 70 blessings. Uh, when I'm in, in times in my life that I'm super distracted, I'll not let my head hit the pillow before I thank God for 70 things through the day. 70 different things, unique things. And I'll start off with, thank you for my wife, you know. But by the end of the day, I'm like, no, here are the things I want to specifically thank you for about my wife. And how, how, what was the last time you thanked God for the way your veins and arteries allow blood to go to your cells? He did that. And he loves you that much that he's, we have so much to thank God for. It's easy to complain about all these little things. Some of them are not little, right? But all of these things seem like they're such a big thing, but we have thousands of things to thank God for. This allows me to consider what Jesus has done for me and in me and what he's continuing to do. Changes my attitude completely to one of gratitude. Another one, and this is a participation thing, okay? Um, you're in church. People already think you're weird because you're here, okay? So be bold here. I'm going to teach you a word, and this is from Joshua 1.8. Remember that guy, Joshua? Moses dies, and God puts Joshua in charge. I mean, he basically sat outside the tent and begged for the job for years, right? He says, you're the guy because you have a hunger for my presence. You're the one who I'm going to send. He says, don't let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Don't let my word depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. And that word meditate, in our, in our society, it's easy to think of that as kind of like, um, and, you know, have peaceful thoughts, clear your mind. Here's the word for meditate. I want you to repeat after me and say it exactly like I do, okay? Haga! Hey, one of you. Okay, the rest of you can do better. I know you can. It's, 
it's like noon. You're awake, okay? Haga! There we go. That's more like it. The reason why I say it that way is this is the exact word used later for a lion. This is a little sad, so animal lovers out there. It's when a lion catches a little goat and hasn't eaten for a week. It's the word used for the growl that the lion makes as it's about to tear into this goat. So when God's talking about meditating on his law, what he's saying is tear into my word. Did you know that God has given us a powerful, perfect revelation of who he is right here? If you want to know who Jesus is, what he's like, who God is, crack this open and God, tear into it. Don't just say it. Don't just read it. Ask questions and wrestle through it with people. Consider what God has written about himself. He wants you to know him. He's not standing far off. Hagah, his word. That's a great way to consider him. Well, I think about Moses and the kind of guy he was, and there's this powerful moment at the end of his life. This is in Deuteronomy 34. He has been faithful to God. He's had hiccups, just like all of us, but he's been faithful to God, and it comes to the end of Moses' life, and he dies. And God actually buries him. No one knows where Moses got buried because God did it, which is awesome, by the way. That's how I want to go, right? And he's buried, and there's these words that are spoken over him, kind of an epitaph, those last words about him. And this is what God had to say about this guy. This is from Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12. It says, Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. How does that sound? You want that on your tombstone? That's finishing well. That's stewarding God's presence well. And one of my mentors really wanted to demonstrate to us what does it look like, that idea of being face-to-face. There's no one like Moses whom the Lord knew face-to-face. And so he had a married couple get up in front of the group. And he said, hold each other's hands and look deep into your eye, into your, your wife's eyes, right? They looked into each other's eyes, and it was this touching moment. He's like, that's not face-to-face. Embrace each other and look deeply into your eyes. And, and so they did. They hugged each other, and they looked at, into each other's eyes. He says, that's not what this phrase face-to-face means. He says, now kiss each other. And they did. And he's like, that's what face-to-face looks like. And what, I'm, what he's not saying, what I'm not saying is I'm not kissing God, but it's that level of intimacy and depth of relationship he wants to have with you. Yes, you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, that's the kind of relationship he's desperate to have with you. He wants to know you face to face. Moses was not an anomaly. It's just that he said yes. Just that he said, I want it. I want that. And I think about God's kingdom, and I think about Spokane, and I think about the amount of work to do out there, how many people are lost and far from Jesus. But then I think about Jesus, and he came, and he showed us exactly what it looks like to live this life of power and passion in God's presence, to steward it well. And what he said to these these people that he'd raised up, this small group of 11 people by the time he left, he said, now it's your turn. Are you going to say yes? to the power and presence of God or not. And they had a decision, and all 11 of them said yes. 300 years later, 80% of the Roman Empire followed and believed in Jesus. 
the same people who put Jesus on the cross and crucified him, their empire was saying yes to Jesus in 300 years. Now, if God can do that with 12 people, look around this room. How many of us are here? How many of us were here at the previous services? If God can do that with 12 people, what can he do with all of us? There's no limit to what he can do. Spokane is a very small thing for God. If we're a people who decides, yes, we're going to steward God's presence well. Yes, we're going to let him into every part of our lives. Yes, he can pick out our socks. Yes, yes, yes to Jesus. So how about it? Are you in? Haggah, yeah. Do you want to steward God's presence well? Because God's going to change the world through you, if you're willing. Let's spend a moment in prayer together. I'd love for you to pray with me. God, I'm so thankful. I, I am so thankful that you picked us. I look around this room, and I love everyone here, but we are a motley crew. Uh, doesn't look like any of us belongs together, and that's the beauty of your kingdom, is you picked all of us. God, thank you that you showered your presence on us, that you made a way where there was no way. But God, we confess it is so easy to get distracted. We have these cell phones that are constantly going off and these shows we want to watch on TV and life in itself is just dragging us in so many ways. We're weak, God. And what we need is an infusion of your spirit. We need your presence to guide us and to help us break free from these things that hinder us, the sin that entangles us, so that we can run with perseverance the race that you've marked out for us. God, we ask with desperation in our hearts that you would meet us here and that you would pave the way for you to do what only you could do, the miraculous in our lives and through us. God, we love you so much. We give all of ourselves to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.